Hello, just going to do Jonah 4, that we couldn't do at church, so let us begin. Now, when I was a baby, my father had said to my mother, uh, Adam doesn't have to eat what he doesn't want to uh, when he's young. And these were words my father came to regret. You see, one day, as we were travelling, I was about four years old, and we'd stopped for lunch at this sandwich shop, and apparently my parents gave me a tomato sandwich. And as my parents tell me, I was not too keen on this particular sandwich. And like any reasonable and understanding four-year-old, I let my parents know of my disquiet and displeasure in a typical four-year-old manner. I sat there and I screamed my head off. So much so that my father, whose words had uh, caused the impasse, sent me outside the store. And so there I found myself outside the sandwich shop, standing at the window, tears streaming down my face, cheeks redder than the tomato I was refusing to eat. People were coming over and seeing if I was in any trouble, and my parents were at the window store, and he's there waving them off as I continued my dummy spit of dummy spits. I was not going to eat this sandwich, and as a four-year-old who was quite reasonable and thinking rightly at the time, they had no right to make me. Apparently it was a grand dummy spin, and my parents have not let me forget it, even to this day. Uh, I said that I was four years old, that only happened last week. No, happened when I was four years old. Now today as we come to the end of Jonah, we will see Jonah throw the dummy spit of dummy spits, and we will see why he thought he had the right to throw it. Last week we heard the 40-week sermon from Dave, uh, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah had gone to preach that sermon and he'd gone into Nineveh really kicking and screaming. And lo and behold, Nineveh listens and so Jonah will be excited, won't he? No, he's furious. And the question is, why would you be so angry? Why throw this dummy spit? To think of it, why did he run in the first place? Is it is, was he worried that he might get beaten up? Is he scared that people won't listen to him, that he doesn't have the words to say? What's motivating Jonah to act this way? What, what's going on in his heart? And as we'll see, what's really going on, what's motivating him is hatred. He can't stand to think that God might have mercy on people other than Israel. But that's what exactly God has done. And we saw that in the last verse of chapter 3. God saw their actions that day Nineveh had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he threatened with uh, them with. And he did not do it. Now, I'd be thrilled if any sermon I preached would have such an effect on people, but not Jonah. He's desperately unhappy. It's, it's, it's kind of strange. Can you imagine if somebody came up or if I'd preached a sermon and people came up to me at the end and said, oh, thank you, Adam, for that. Your words were great. As, as you spoke, God changed my heart. And I go, oh, yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. You, you just go, what's wrong? That's Jonah. He, he's unhappy with the effects of his sermon. Stranger still, he's angry. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He's filled with rage that comes from witnessing what 
generally comes from people witnessing a terrible injustice. He's throwing a tantrum like a three-year-old. And it is a beauty dummy spit, as we'll see. And yet, so much so, he says three times throughout the passage, I'd rather die than sit through your mercy, God, for Nineveh. Look at verse 4. Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 8. It would be better for me to die than to live. Verse 9. I am angry enough to die. Why are you so angry, Jonah? Why why this behaviour? And make no mistake, this is anger directed at God. Now normally people get angry with God because of some tragedy or some something terrible has come upon them. But Jonah's fury Jonah's fury with God is for completely different reasons. Jonah's not angry because something bad has happened, but because something good. He's angry because he knew God would forgive the city of Nineveh. Look at verse 2. Lord, please Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still with you in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah's angry at God's compassion and graciousness towards Nineveh. As far as Jonah concerned, Nineveh, it can literally go to hell. That's why he ran in the first place, so that Nineveh would be destroyed. And when you think about it, and you think about what's happened to Jonah throughout the passage, you realise he's just being such a massive hypocrite. Do you remember back in chapter 2 when Jonah was praying to God? I called to God in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside. Sheol, you heard my voice. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit. Lord my God. Back then, Jonah's very happy to be the recipient of God's mercy. He was overjoyed when God rescued him. He knew full well that he ought to be destroyed by God for his rebellion. In fact, that's what he's expecting when he was tossed into the raging sea, sucked down into the waves and fell into the depths, right into the belly of the fish. He's quite happy then to receive God's kindness and salvation. So much so, if you remember what he prayed next, think back. And this is an important section and verse of the whole book. And it's back to chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Salvation belongs to the Lord. They are very significant words. But they are words that will rebound on Jonah and do rebound upon Jonah in this passage. We need to be careful what we say because our words can bounce back so quickly on us. I was watching a video of someone on the streets of New York City and they were asking people what they thought of the country of Ukraine handing out guns to its citizens to fight the Russians. 
And almost to a person, they all said, that is a good thing to do. That is good that that nation hands out guns to its citizens to protect itself. But then they were asked whether they supported the right of their fellow Americans having arms or bearing arms. And it was strange how many of them who had just said, that is a good thing, now ran away from their words. Now, my point isn't about gun rights or the place of guns. My point is, be very careful with your words because your words can rebound on you far quicker than you can think. Here, Jonah's words will rebound on him in a couple of ways. But most significantly, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is a big point of the chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, all right, great. Salvation is God. Salvation comes from God. It belongs to God. So how does Jonah respond when he's given similar mercy, when God gives similar mercy of his salvation to the Ninevites? You're wrong, God. Your salvation shouldn't be given to them. Salvation might belong to the Lord, but he shouldn't give it to people I don't like. And then what he does is just really quite terrible. He pulls up a deck chair and he awaits for the destruction of Nineveh. He waits to see if God will change his mind. Verse 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Jonah heads to the outskirts of the city. He gets out the folded chair, pulls up the esky, you know, sets up the little um, beach umbrella, plonks himself down, grabs some popcorn, some nibblies, pulls out a cool drink, maybe a beer or martini. Didn't exist, but you know, you get the picture. He's waiting for the show to begin. And he's waiting for, for what? He's waiting to see if God will change his mind and destroy the city. Jonah is still hoping for the very worst for these people. Come on, God. Good for some time for some good old-fashioned fire and brimstone. Chuck in some sulfur for good measure. Just don't blow it my way. And that is the issue. When you ask people about God's judgment, they often unthinkingly say and reactively say that they don't believe that there would be a God who would judge. Then you would bring up the worst of humanity, you, you know, your Hitlers, your Stalins, your Pol Pots, or you think of some despicable act that people do, rape, murder, ped, um, pedophilia. And then all of a sudden, people believe in a God who brings about judgment because they want to see justice in the world. And then you say the contradiction. This is the contradiction that happens. As they say that, and as you push people along this contradiction in a God who doesn't judge, but who does judge bad things, you realize the truth of what's really going on. It's not that people don't believe in God's judgment. They do. It's just that they do not believe in a God that will judge them. They do not believe 
that they should not, well, they believed that they should not be judged by God. And this is exactly what Jonah is doing. This is the reason for his tantrum. And I have seen a lot of tantrums, and some of them have been pretty effective. I have four children. I have given in. But not God. He's not going to give in to Jonah's dummy spit. And the reason is, the dummy spit is the reaction God wants because it is through the dummy spit of Jonah that God is going to reveal Jonah's heart and show him the problem that he is God. Verse 6, Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah here is absolutely furious again. About Nineveh? No. He's furious about a meaningless vine. How dare you, God? take away and destroy this vine and he feels and thinks he is justified in his anger and so God asks him do you have the right to be angry about the vine and like any reasonable child Jonah responds with the great words absolutely I have every right to be angry about it Jonah's anger is wrong. God has been exceedingly gracious to him, even with the evil that is still obviously in his heart. He is sitting there. Jonah is sitting at the edge of the city and he is waiting to see if God will judge and destroy this city. He wants it to happen. But this meaningless fine? that's offered him just a little bit of comfort in the heat, he says to God, how dare you? How dare you destroy this vine? And God says, well, Jonah, you didn't plant the vine and you didn't grow it. It's not your vine. You've, you've done nothing to make it come about. And so God drives home the lesson with these questions. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labour over, and you did not grow. It appeared in a night, and it perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which is more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right, their right, their right, their right and their left, as well as many animals. God's saying to Jonah, how heartless can you be? How can you not be concerned that so many people are facing my judgment? How can you be so heartless, Jonah? that you could sit there at the edge of the city 
and wait for its destruction. And it leaves that question. And the book leaves that question there and the book ends there because it forces us to raise questions. It asks us in Jonah's position, will we care? How, do, how would we respond to that question? Here's the truth about this book. Though it is God's word, and it is God's word, and though we are to rightly respond, we are not its original intended audience. See, the book is originally written to Israel. It's not written to the people of Nineveh. They've heard the message from God and they've repented. God had mercy on them. The book is written to Israel. And Jonah is a prophet to Israel. So this book is meant to be a lesson to the nation of Israel, who were God's chosen special people. Right from the start, they had all the benefits of God's grace, of God's kindness and love. They were recipients of the promises to Abraham. God had slaved them out of slavery from Egypt. God had made a covenant with them to be his chosen people, a royal nation, chosen from all the nations of the earth. God said, you, Israel, are my people. And as Jonah has gone about, he has gone about as a representative of those people. And God You've got to remember what God has done. He has traveled with them. He has dwelt amongst them. He's delivered them time and time again. God has made great plans for the nation of Israel. And he has had pity on them in their rebellion, in their hard-heartedness, in their stiffness. If they have continually, and you could just read the scriptures up to this point, as Israel has continually rebelled against God's word. And so you, you're left asking the question, well, what is God's point to Israel? And you come with this strange phrase at the end of the book, and it is a strange phrase, where it says, there are many animals shouldn't god have compassion on them on the great city of nineveh and the many animals and another way that's often translated is and the many cattle i think this is a really significant word and this really brings out what god's having and there's two ways of understanding it and they're not exclusive they are slightly different and they have slightly different endings but you'll see that they're really making a very similar point. And the first way of understanding it is what God is saying here is God made everything. He's made this wonderful city of Nineveh and it is offered shelter to all these people and all the animals are there. They're there as part of God's good creation. And so what God is saying is my judgment, if it was to fall on Nineveh, wouldn't just fall on Nineveh, it would fall on all the creation around it. it, it my my judgment really destroys. And so I don't want to do that. I want to have pity upon the nations. I've had pity upon you, Israel, all this time. 
should I not also have pity amongst the nations? I think that is a very relevant point and it has a very significant application. We'll come back to the application. But there is a, a second point that God could also be saying and it's, does he re, does he mean cattle or flocks of the field? And I, I think the second point that he is really referring to cattle is what's on God's mind. Because you've got to remember what is happening. Israel is under the rule of Jeroboam II. And that would have been a callback, obviously, to Jeroboam I. That Israel would have known it. But why is Jeroboam I so important? Jeroboam I, if you remember, was the king in Israel who introduced the idolatry to Israel. He is the one who said when the nation split, when the nation of Israel split into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom, he is the one who said, I'm terrified of my people going back down and worshipping God in Jerusalem. Because if they go back down to Jerusalem, I could lose them. They could just, oh, David's so awesome. Look at this great place. They're going to go and want to be uh, under his rule. So what I'm going to do is set up worship for the nation of, or the northern nation, the northern kingdom of Israel up here. And what he created were two golden calves in the south and in the north for people to worship, to come and worship God. I think what God here is having a shot at is at Israel, that they are the northern kingdom, that they are the nation that is cherishing worthless idols. And this is where I think verse 8 is really, of chapter 2, really sticks in the crawl. Because it is Jonah who has said, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Which is the nation that is cherishing worthless idols? It is Israel. Nineveh has received a little word from God. And they've repented. The sailors, they, they heard that the judgment was from God and they were like, cried out to God, what should we do? And they, as soon as Jonah said, chuck me into the sea, they went, all right, that will do. They tried to save him, but they would go, okay, whatever it takes to appease this God who might be angry. Israel, generation after generation, are in constant rebellion, are not listening, are turned and hard-hearted against the true and living God at the slightest whiff of judgment. The Gentile nations have turned. But Israel, God's chosen people, they're in full flight headed, hard-nosed rebellion and they will not listen. I think this is a big dig at the nation of Israel. One of the big points, and it comes out in chapter 3, is repentance. Israel repent. And they fail over and over and over again. Now, obviously, we're not the nation of Israel. So how does this apply to us? I think there's two applications. And they're both linked together. 
The first is a missional application. As we looked at the book of Jonah, as we watched the book of Jonah, we have seen God's heart towards lost people. He would rather show compassion than punish. He'd rather forgive. He'd rather have mercy on people. And that is exactly what he has done to Nineveh when it turns and repents towards him. Jesus' mission can be summed up in his uh, in the words, I've come to seek and save the lost. He tells parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, to convince the Pharisees to turn away from their view, to not be like Jonah, not be hard-hearted. And Jesus keeps on turning to sinners and calling them. And what do the Pharisees do when they see all these sinners turn and repent? Oh, he's from Beelzebul. And Jesus says, I've come to save the righteous. Or think about, sorry, think about the doctor. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Israel, the Pharisees, in Jesus' time, they're acting like, well, we don't need this salvation. We're God's people. And Jesus is like, what do you want? I have come to save these type of people. I have come to seek and save that which is lost. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they just turn against it. God's heart is for the lost. He cares for the lost. Now, as God's people, he wants us to be like him. He wants us to have his own heart. Imagine for a moment a scale. On one side of the scale are the Pharisees and the scribes, hard-hearted and turned against God, who just want to condemn everybody, and Jesus, who comes to seek and save the lost. Where would you be on that scale? We're coming into our evangelism term, and it starts with Easter. I mean, it's three months where we have many opportunities for people to come and hear God's word and to respond. Can I encourage you to take that opportunity, to take the time to invite people to the many events? We're going to have five main events, but there are every Sunday is an event where we're going to be preaching the gospel. And we want people to hear this good news. Why? Because we love people. We're not people who think uh, God's judgment is not real. We know it is real. That's why we invite people. Because it is so serious. But we know that God's grace is greater and can will be all our sins forgiven if we place our trust and our hope in Jesus. And that is why we go out on mission to do that. But that's the first application. The second application is what I think the book is really hitting at. And that is the need for repentance. We need to be living repentant lives. Repentance just means to change your mind. I was talking to my boys about it and it was interesting 
where one of my sons was talking about how people in his class just laugh at Christianity. And it's because they're hard-hearted and, and don't know the gospel. As Christians, we need to be people who are soft-hearted and want to help people and encourage people to be repentant. And then we're never going to encourage anybody to be repentant if we ourselves do not turn away from our own sins. We as Gentiles can read this book, going to Gentiles and the preaching, and we can think, oh, well, we are the main audience. But we are not the intended audience or the original intended audience. It was the northern kingdom of Israel. They are the ones who are living in rebellion against God at that time. And as we watch as we watch Jonah overlooking Nineveh, waiting for its destruction, we watch him, as he says in his own words, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Here is the servant of the Lord, hoping God will destroy Nineveh. Yet all the time he sits there waiting for Nineveh's destruction. He does so acting very differently responding very differently to the way the Ninevites themselves have responded to God. Whereas the Ninevites have repented at the word of God, Jonah is still sitting in his hard-hearted arrogance. God is calling on us to repent. The Christian life is really one of repentance. And this is the context that Jesus picks up on. This is the meaning that Jesus picks up on when he speaks about this passage in Matthew 12. Now we've read Matthew 12 and the sign of Jonah that Jesus picks up on. But just before is really the point that Jesus is making. And in the context of the section, this is what's happening. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day have just called him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus then says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, who are evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. It's easy to point the finger at the person over there. Far harder to look into your own heart. And see the problems that we have. So many times I watch people walk into church. And as they come into church, they're lovely people. They're they're delightful. And then they walk out of church. And they've, they've heard the message. They've heard the word of God. And... For all intents and purposes, they seem to be living good, solid Christian lives. But then comes Monday morning, and I don't see how you wake up. I don't see how you act. Are you angry? Are you grouchy? 
Have what you heard just before just been forgotten? Have you done the car park conversion? You know what it's like. Drive the car, be yelling or screaming at your wife, your brother, your sister, whoever. Get out of the car, walk into church, everything's smiley, everybody's happy. Get back into the car. Christianity is not a Sunday religion. It's a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday religion. It is every day. We're called on to to be honest about what's going on. We are called on to be honest about our hearts, to want to change, to be repentant about the sins in our lives. And it's not so we can earn our salvation. God is gracious. God is good. God has given us salvation. But the joy of that salvation is the honesty to be open about our failures and our need to repentance and to be more like Christ. But you're only going to do that if you stop and admit your failures. The gospel is an all-of-life process. We are saved by grace, but by grace continually through repentance, God changes and transforms us. We need to put away those secret desires. We need to put away the porn, the the lying, the anger, the cheating on our taxes as that season comes up. We need to be generous, loving, and we need to change because the Christian life is one of change. As we come to the end of this series, as we come to the end of the book of Jonah, it is a very real book that looks into our hearts and asks some very tough questions of ourselves. Does it call us to mission? Yeah, it does. It calls us to go out and seek and save the lost. But more importantly, it asks us to look seriously into our own hearts, to be honest about what is going on there, and to call on God to change, to be repentant. It's easy to be the upfront, outface, look good Christian But the surface means nothing because God is the one who sees and changes our hearts. And if we're not going to be honest about our hearts, then then they're not going to change. But if we're honest, God is gracious and kind, will change us for his sake and for his glory. Have a good week. I wish you all the best. May Christ bless you greatly. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ. Help us to be honest and open about our own hearts and our own failures that we might change, that you might change us for the glory and praise of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Bye.